in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word, family. Amen. 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 So if I were to summarize this passage, uh, it may go something like this. Jesus, the son of God, is baptized by John and tempted by Satan as he prepares for his public ministry. This is what we see in these few verses in 9-13. Jesus, the son of God, is baptized by John the Baptist. He's tempted by Satan as he prepares for his public ministry. Two points this afternoon, and as you see them on your screen, two points as we see it laid out in the text. Jesus is baptized by John. You see that in verses 9 through 11. And we'll have a few subpoints from there. And then point number two, Jesus is tempted by Satan. You see that in verses 12 through 13. So number one, Jesus is baptized by John. Number two, Jesus is tempted by Satan. All right, so point number one, Jesus is baptized by John. Look back with me at verse nine as we see Jesus coming from Nazareth. So it says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. So the last two weeks, we we looked at how God made a promise and how he came through on his promise, right? So we we looked at how God had, had made a promise to send his son. He came through on his promise, right? So he sent Jesus, his son, into the world. Jesus was the promised king from the Old Testament. He was the, the promised Messiah that the people of Israel were looking for, right? But off gate, Jesus didn't fit the description of the king they were hoping for. Off gate, he didn't fit the description that they were hoping for. So they didn't think the king would come from a place called Nazareth. It's like when Jesus called Philip and Nathaniel to be his disciples in John chapter 1. You might remember that. In verse 45, it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Then verse 46, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Come and see. So the question is, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Yes. The only one who is good came out of Nazareth, the Lord Jesus. Now, we know from Scripture that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but then he was raised in Nazareth after dodging a hit uh, that was put out on him by King Herod at the time, right? King Herod was trying to kill him, right? So we don't have time to to turn there now, but but I would encourage you to jot these down in your own time and and look at them. But here are some verses speaking towards that. So Matthew 2, 1. In Matthew uh, yeah, 2, 1, and in verses 16 through 23 of the same chapter. And then Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, and 39 through 40 of that same chapter, right? You'll see where, yeah, Jesus was, was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth after dodging a hit from King Herod. 
One Bible scholar lets us know that, lets us know this about Nazareth. He says, Jesus came from Nazareth, a small town in the middle of nowhere. The region of Galilee was despised because of its distance from Jerusalem and for its infestation of Gentiles. The town of Nazareth was even worse, unknown and unmentioned. So Jesus was a nobody from nowhere. So for all of us folks who come from small towns in the middle of nowhere, be encouraged. Our Lord can relate uh, this afternoon. That may not be one way you can apply it, obviously, but uh, he came from a small town. He came from a, a place that was not known, unknown, not mentioned. We also learned this about the Lord Jesus uh, in Luke 3.23, that he was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry, right? So Luke 3.23 says this. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old or 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph, right? And so he's preparing for ministry, right? And so we, we, we think about his, his coming. He comes on the scene, comes from Nazareth. And then the text continues to let us know what else he does, right? He comes to be baptized. So Jesus comes from Nazareth, but then, two, he's baptized by John. Baptized by John the Baptist. Look back at verse 9 with me. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So before we, we move forward, uh, let's, let's define what I mean by baptism, what I believe the scriptures mean by baptism. So in our statement of faith, uh, what we believe as a church, our statement of faith, number 14, we define it this way. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost to show forth a solemn and beautiful emblem, our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life that it is prerequisite to the privileges of a church relation. So that's our statement of faith. That's what we believe here at CHCC. And we believe this because the Bible teaches this. Starting here with Mark 1.9, as we see our Lord Jesus being baptized in the water, right? And then when Jesus commands all Christians to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? So Jesus, you know, models and and shows us what it means to be baptized. Then he also calls us as followers of his to be baptized. But then also, we believe that baptism is a picture of the gospel. And it's a, a, a picture, even as, you know, you hear in our statement of faith, it's a, it's a beautiful emblem. It's a, it's, a, it's a picture of the gospel. Think with me, Romans 6, 3 through 4. You can turn there if you like. I'm going to read it here. But think with me, Romans 6. Read through four. As it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you see, baptism here 
showing off what yeah we hope happens in uh, one who is converted. And what happened in us as we were converted, for those of us who know Jesus, we were buried yep, into Christ and we were raised into Christ, with Christ. So if you're here and you don't know Lord Jesus, uh, maybe you have seen a friend or a family member uh, who was baptized. Uh, maybe you were there and, and witnessed it. And what you witnessed was, we pray, what we hope the Lord would do in you right now. That when we think about baptism in, in its short sense of a definition, if you will, baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. Right? It's an outward expression of an inward reality. In that, someone receives Christ. You understand, you, you understand what uh, the good news is, but the good news starts with the bad news in that we are sinners. That we have sinned before God. That our first parents failed, like God gave them a direct command, and they didn't uh, live up to what God had, had ordained or had given them the command. They didn't keep it. And they sinned against God. And because of their sin, uh, they deserve God's judgment, uh, which is his righteous wrath due to sinners. And every human being that's been born since has been born with a defect, has been born with a disease. And that disease is sin. And it's rampant. We sin because we're sinners. That's who we are. Right? But the good news is that Jesus comes to deal with our sin. Jesus, the Son of God, comes from his heavenly home, and he comes and he lives among the people, among us. He's on earth, and he lives a perfect sinless life. Right? Jesus was, was, he is God and he's sinless and he's perfect. And he lives the life that we couldn't live. But then he dies the death that we all deserved on the cross for our sin because he had no sin for which he had to die for. But he goes to the cross willingly and willfully, dies, and is buried in a grave for you, for me. But he didn't stay there long. On the third day, he was resurrected from the dead with all power and dominion. And because of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, he offers us life, eternal life, for all who would repent. It means to turn away from sin and turn to him by faith and by belief, by trust solely in what Jesus has done alone on the cross. And the Bible says, once you do that, You'll be saved. You'll be saved. You'll be forgiven of all of your sin, cleansed, given a new heart, given a new mind, a new will, and that will being to please him and to glorify him with your life. And then you're called to be a part of a family. So he, Jesus can save you. And he saves you not for you to be solo, not for you to be a loner Christian, but he saves you to be a part of a community. 
his body, his church, so that we can do this, that we can come each week and praise him for what he has done, so that we can love one another during the week, so that we can check in on one another, so that we can help one another, support one another, and as we were just out this, this morning on the block, so that we can be on mission together to share the good news of Christ. And so if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, we want to invite you to know him this afternoon. This is the most important, as we talked about this in the first sermon, this is the most important question that you will ever be asked or have to answer. And that is, do you know him? Do you know him? And so we don't want you, if you don't know him, we want to, we don't want you to leave out of these doors without knowing him. We want you to know that you have an opportunity to know him now. And so we pray by God's grace that you would. And if you have any other questions, you would like to talk about that further, please come see me after the service. I would love, it would be my joy to talk with you more about what it means to know Jesus, and what it means to, to follow him. So then you take that, you take this being the good news of Christ, the only message by which you can be saved, and as a picture of that, baptism. Baptism being your response that you have committed to the Lord Jesus, and that you've committed to his people, and it's, it's a declaration to the church and to the world that you are his. And so baptism being an outward expression of an inward reality, a celebratory event to acknowledge that you are a Christian. Not that baptism saves you, but that it, it is a picture of the salvation work that has happened in your heart. And so you commit to that. Just like the Lord Jesus, as we see in this example, as we'll tease this out a little bit more, baptized in Christ as a picture of the gospel. Amen? With me? Amen. Amen. And that it's a prerequisite to the privileges of church relations, i.e. membership. Because this is the biblical pattern laid out in Scripture as we see with the early church. So think about this framework. So belief precedes baptism, and baptism precedes belonging, membership, right? So a few examples. You can think with me. After Peter preached the first Christian sermon in the history of the church, Right? Acts 2 to 41, in response to the first Christian sermon, it says, Acts 2 41, so those who received his word were baptized. And there, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So again, so those who, you hear this, so Peter basically preached the gospel. Those who received the gospel, those who received the word, were then what? Baptized. And after they were baptized, they were then added to the church. They were then added, as it says, that day about 3,000 souls. If you know the book of Acts, you know that this is the biblical pattern that you see all throughout the book of Acts. That's threaded throughout the book of Acts that people are saved, people are baptized, and they are added to the church. They're saved, they're baptized, added to the church. The Lord adds them to the church. We even see this in Paul's conversion, right? Paul, uh, Acts 9, 18. You know, Paul you know, killed Christians, right? The Lord saves him. And here we have 
a part of his, after his conversion, it says in verse 18 of chapter 9, Acts 9, it says, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And he rose and was baptized. He was baptized. So we know that, yeah, the Lord Jesus, you know, by the vision, knocked him to his knees, saves him, and then Paul is baptized. He's baptized. So we believe in Christian baptism or believer's baptism because this is what we believe the Bible teaches consistently, right? That people are saved, people are then baptized, and then they're then added to the church. What's amazing about Jesus' baptism by John is that there are a few things that I want to walk through, and there's about six things that I'm going to walk through that that lifts up about Jesus' baptism. Number one, it prepares him for public ministry. Number one, Jesus' baptism prepares him for public ministry. This is why Jesus is so dope. He doesn't command something that he doesn't do himself doesn't command something that he doesn't then do himself. He commands every believer to be baptized. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. But then we see at the very beginning of his ministry, before he even did ministry, Jesus obeyed, getting baptized, right? Number two, it identifies him with sinful humanity. It identifies him with sinful humanity. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus identifies with sinners needing to repent and confess their sins, except Jesus has no sin for which he had to confess or repent for, right? He is sinless, and he is perfect. You think about 2 Corinthians 5.21, right, where it says God made him, so he who knew no sin, to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. You think about Hebrews 4.15, right, that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, right? He was tempted in every way, yet without sin, right? This is who we're talking about, the Lord Jesus, right? That he identifies with sinners in his baptism. But he had no sin for which he had to repent for or confess. Number three, which is kind of coincided with the second one. Number three, it connects him to John's ministry. It connects him to John's ministry. If you were with us last week, as we looked at verses four through eight, we studied this, that, that it connects him to John's ministry. You know, John the Baptist was out baptizing, right? And what does it say? If you look back up, if you just look a few verses up, it says, John appeared, verse 4, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, right? And then all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were coming to him to be baptized, and they were confessing their sins, right? Well, Jesus, yeah, in him being baptized, it connects him to John's ministry of baptism. Listen to Matthew's account in talking about Jesus' baptism, Matthew 3, 13 through 15. It says, then Jesus from Galilee, came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness then he consented right so john is like you want me to baptize you i've been telling the folks that a greater baptism is coming that you're like i'm baptizing with water but you will baptize them with the holy spirit he's like i need to be baptized by you it's like michael jordan asking me to teach him how to do the fadeaway 
right? Now, I can't do a fadeaway, but not like him. I can't do a fadeaway like MJ, right? I'll be like, no, MJ, I need you to teach me how to do the fadeaway. Not only as we think about this, uh, you know, when we think about this connecting to, to John's ministry and how crucial that is, is that Jesus is fulfilling, as we even thought about last week, he's fulfilling prophecy. He's fulfilling what God had already said would be, said would happen, right? As we thought about over these last two weeks that, that you know, God said he would send Jesus, and he sends Jesus, and he comes. He said he would send John, the forerunner, right, to fulfill the passages we looked at last week in Isaiah. And he does. And Jesus comes and fulfills what God had ordained to happen. Not only does it connect him to John's ministry, but number four, the Spirit affirms Jesus' baptism. The Spirit affirms Jesus' baptism. Look at verse 10. What does it say? It says, and when he came up out the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Right? So immediately is a common word used in the Gospel of Mark. You'll see it teased out throughout the, the whole book. Uh, and essentially, it's, it's Mark is, Mark, Mark's Gospel is a fast-paced Gospel. Right? It's like immediately, immediately, immediately. There's a sense of urgency right, with that word, right, immediately. It's a sense of urgency type word. And in light of this, the Spirit puts his stamp on Jesus. And he puts his stamp on him in that Jesus is the Son of God. He, he puts his stamp on him saying, this is the Son of God, the promised Messiah. This was fulfillment of the prophecies in Isaiah about Jesus. So Isaiah 42, verse 1. I'll read it. You can write this down, but I'll read it here. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. Right? This is talking about the Lord Jesus. Then in Isaiah 11:2, he gives us a little more details surrounding this. He says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So Isaiah 42.1, Isaiah 11.2, both promises fulfilled in this very moment in the Lord Jesus' baptism. Then we see here, as you look, it says a dove. It was like a dove. Well, this didn't mean like a literal dove, right? It wasn't a literal dove, but it was more, like when you think about a dove, how gentle they are and how pure they look. So in gentleness and purity, like a dove, the spirit rested on Jesus and affirmed Jesus, Jesus for public ministry. Not only does the spirit affirm Jesus' baptism, but we also see that the father affirms Jesus' baptism or approves of his baptism. You see that in verse 11. Here's what it reads. It says, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Once again, we see Jesus' deity being affirmed here in that the father calls him son. Right? If you were with us 
uh, in the first sermon of this series, Mark 1.1, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how the book starts out. Letting us know that this book is about Jesus, who is the Son of God. It's about the good news about him in every gospel. Really, the whole Bible <laughs> is about him. It's about Jesus. It's about God. And as we learned in the first sermon of this series, this is Mark's favorite title to use when referring to Jesus, right? I love how Dr. Aiken puts it. Uh, he's Southeastern Seminary's um, uh, president. He says, Son of God is a crucial title for the promised deliverer. It takes Christology, that's the doctrine of Christ, to a higher level. Bob Stein says, Son of God reveals Jesus' unique and unparalleled relationship with God. It is the favorite title of Mark for identifying Jesus. And when Mark was written, it conveyed to the Christian community the idea of both pre-existence, that he existed before all things, and his deity, right? And so this is, when we think about Jesus and who he is and his name in that man, he is God. And Mark Offgate is letting us know that this is about Jesus, who is God. And the Father here is affirming the Son because he is God. So Jesus is affirmed in his baptism by God the Father that he is God and is prepared for ministry. Now, something I want to be very clear about is that in both the Spirit affirming Jesus and the Father affirming Jesus or, um, yeah, affirming Jesus in the baptism, this doesn't mean that Jesus at this moment became God. It doesn't mean that he at that moment in his baptism that he became God. No, they are affirming Jesus as God because he was God, was already God, right? And they're putting, his, putting their stamp on him as such. Right. So not only this, but we see one more crucial truth from Jesus' baptism, don't we? Right. And I've already been kind of alluding to it. Number six, last one. God is triune. God is triune. God is Trinity. What this means is, is that we believe in the Bible that God has displayed himself as Trinity. One God three distinct persons. So one essence, three distinct persons. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we see this uh, so beautifully in this text, don't we? In the baptism of Jesus, right? You see what? You see that Jesus is being baptized by John. You see the Spirit, right? And then you see the Father, a voice from heaven, calling. So we see the Trinity here on display. So, so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we believe that this is what the Scriptures teach from Genesis to Revelation in that how God has revealed himself. It's Trinity. So two applications before we move on to point two. You're here and you are a Christian, but you've never been baptized. I want to encourage you to, to model after Jesus. And to obey Jesus and be baptized. And be baptized. Once again, Jesus doesn't call us to do something that he himself didn't do. So if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you. You've never been baptized. To, to think about that, to pray on that, to look at scripture. 
and and to then as the scripture calls us compels us to obey him and to model after him and be baptized maybe you have questions about that uh, maybe you have some hesitations about that and if that's you we'd love to talk further with you on this we'd love to walk with you and think about this together so if you're here and you haven't been baptized we'd love to talk further about what that might mean for you from the scripture number two for all of us who struggle with legalism, approval of man, or people-pleasing, if you are in Christ, God is pleased with you. Not based on you, though, or me, but based on his son. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but let this be something, I mean, it's, it's freeing to me. Let it be freeing to you. And now think about this once again. Before Jesus did any work, he hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't done any miracle, nothing says here that the father was pleased with him. Pleased with him. Now, for some of us, we sometimes confuse it in that, man, we think we got to do a lot of work and that God would be pleased with us because of how much work we do. Or how much, yeah, how many times we read our Bible, how many times we pray. Once again, we need, to, we need to read our Bibles. We need to pray. We need to be out sharing the gospel. We need to be out loving our neighbors. I'm not negating any of those different things. Those are good things. But God loves you and is pleased with you because Jesus has already done the work for you. Right? And so what's beautiful about this, if you are in Christ, God no longer looks at you as you. He looks at you on the basis of his son. He sees his son when he looks at you. Because you have believed upon his son and received him by faith. And so his life has become your life, right? We are sinners, saved by God's grace. And so when, now when we think about, like, like, when we think about, man, we are sinful before God, et cetera, et cetera. When, when God looks at us now, he sees Jesus' perfect record, a sinless record. That's freeing. That's good news. So may we latch on to that, right? And may that be the, may that be the medicine for our legalism. May that be the, the medicine for our approval of man, our fear of man, our people pleasing. That, that God looks at us on the basis of his son. He sees the beauty of his son and what he's done on our behalf. Amen? Amen. So may that encourage us this afternoon. Point number two, and I'm out your way. Jesus is tempted by Satan. Jesus is tempted by Satan. Verses 12 through 13, so number one, the Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness. That's verse 12. Look back there with me. It says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now notice, this is after Jesus is baptized, right? Jesus is baptized, and normally after a baptism, we would expect some type of feasting or some type of celebration, right? It's a celebratory event, right? When we see believers being baptized, right? Well, here we have Jesus. He was immediately, there's that word again, immediately, that sense of urgency word. He was sent into the wilderness where he would go to war with Satan. He would go to war with Satan. Notice something else. Jesus is submissive to the Spirit and goes. So it says that the Spirit 
immediately drove him out. And he goes. So we see there that, that even that, that humble submission by, by the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, submitting to the third person of the Trinity and being sent. And he, and he goes. And the text says that he goes into the wilderness. And so the wilderness here is where God often met his people. One scholar says, recall the exodus when God brought his children out of Egypt into the wilderness where he would then give them his law, where he would feed them, and where he would lead them by cloud and fire, right? So Jesus is sent into the, to the wilderness. He continues to say, the scholar says, he says, again in Hosea 2, 14 through 15, he promised his presence. He says here in this text, it says, therefore I am going to persuade her, lead her to the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. There she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of the land of Egypt, right? So, so Jesus has been sent into the wilderness. But number two, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, right? Look back at verse 15, 13. It says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. So at this moment of the text is welcome to war in the wilderness between Jesus and Satan, right? The text tells us that Jesus was there 40 days being tempted by Satan. There was no chill. There was no chill. Jesus wasn't vacationing in the wilderness. The conditions were hard. And he probably was tired and weak. So, in light of that, to grumble or complain would have been an easy move for Jesus. Would have been easy for him. This 40 days also reminds us of when the children of Israel were in the wilderness 40 years, where they grumbled and complained and failed to trust God. Or when Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days in Exodus 34, 28. So just one, one quick thought. For some of you, for some of us, you might be in, in a wilderness season right now. You might feel like you're in a wilderness season right now. And for you, the easy route would be to grumble, to complain, and to not trust God, to not trust him. But I want to encourage you, don't go the easy route. Don't go the easy route. Trust God in this season and in every season. God hasn't failed you, and he won't fail you yet. He'll never fail you. So you can trust God in the good times and the bad times, in the tough seasons and the good seasons. He is faithful. He remains faithful, even when we're faithless. Even when, even when we're struggling to trust him, he still remains faithful. And he's faithful to you and to me. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. So may we latch hold to that. Not negating the hard times. Hard times are rough. It's painful. We don't want to be in them. It sucks. We don't want to do it. It's hard. But even in that, what the Lord does, 
And what he produces, producing steadfastness, producing patience, increasing and deepening and strengthening your faith, growing you closer and closer to him, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And it's him. It's him. Jesus, Jesus never promised that we wouldn't go through hard stuff. But he did promise that he would be with us in it. And so maybe be reminded of all of that in whatever season we're in right now. That Jesus is with you. He promised to be with you. And we can bank on his promises. Amen? He always comes through. He always comes through in his perfect timing. And his timing is always perfect. He always comes through. So may we be reminded of that. So Jesus is the better Moses. right? He's the superior prophet. The second Israel. And the new Adam. And so where Moses and Israel... And Adam failed, Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't. And we get a glimpse of the battle here in Mark 1, but Matthew and Luke gives us a bit more details surrounding the war in the wilderness with the Lord Jesus and Satan. So Matthew chapter 4, you can write this down. I'm going to read this here. In thinking about Jesus' battle, with Satan. It says here, it says, starting in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So as I mentioned, Luke's account is very similar, pretty much similar, identical to Matthew's. But in the last verse, he says this about Satan. In verse 13 of Luke 4, he says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. Satan is so crafty. He's sneaky. He's always looking for an opportune time to trip you up, to trip me up. We must be privy to his scheme. We learned this during our time in Ephesians 6, but, but Satan be scheming. He is scheming. 
He doesn't like you or me. He's our enemy. He hates us. He hates God. And he hates the people of God. And he hates the things of God. He is a liar and the father of lies. He is the accuser of the brethren. 1 Peter 5, 8 lets us know that he is our adversary, right? And he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't be caught slipping. Jesus wasn't. Let's not be caught slipping. Did you notice Jesus' weapon that he used during the battle? He used during the war with Satan. Four times Jesus quoted scripture. Four times quoted scripture. He went into battle with his sword, the word of God, the Bible, not the wisdom of the world, not his parents' words, not his friends' words, not what he thought the word said, although he is the word and so he knew the word. He was the word made flesh. But he came to battle with the word of God. We must model after Jesus as we go to war daily with Satan and the principalities and high places. We are at war, y'all. It is a war. And we must go to war equipped for battle, ready for war, with the weapons that God has given us. We looked at this when we were in Ephesians 6. And one other thing that I want to add to this is that ultimately we must trust in God's strength and not our own. Like we must trust in God's strength in this battle, not our own strength. We're weak. We need God's strength. Ephesians 6.10 it says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Right? And then Paul continues in the next verse. He says, to put on the whole armor of God. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So first, man, go in the strength of the Lord. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. And during our time in Ephesians in the series, we looked at uh, what the armor was in a bit more detail, right? Right? But two of the offensive weapons that we saw in our time during that time was the sword, the Bible, the word of God, and prayer. So, saints, we got to be in the word. We got to be in the word. Like, the word is our weapon. The word is our only hope in the battle. Not our wisdom, not what we think about this and that or this and the third. The wisdom of God, his word. And we got to be on our knees, praying fervently. We are waging war against principalities and high places. You think the enemy wants us out on the block on Sunday morning sharing the gospel? No. You think the enemy wants us gathering here on a Sunday afternoon? No. You think he wants you during the week, reading your Bibles, in prayer, meeting up with the saints, doing the things of God? No. He doesn't like you. He doesn't like me. He doesn't like Jesus. He hates us. And so he hates when we're doing this. And he will try 
every way that he can to trip us up, to tempt us, to knock us off course, to cause friction, to cause disunity, to cause whatever it might be, anything. He will do that to take our eyes off him. And so we got to be privy, privy to his schemes and fighting in the weapons that God has given us. Our weapons in our warfare is not carnal, right? It's not carnal weapons. Weapons of the Spirit. And so may we be in our word. May we be studying the Bible, meditating on the Bible, soaking up the Bible daily, seeking to meet with Jesus every time we open up this book. That's what we're doing. We're meeting with God, seeking to meet with him to know him, to know his perspective on life, on everything, to know his perspective on marriage and how we're to do life as married couples, to know his perspective on how we're to do life as single folks, to know his perspective on how we are to, yeah, to work and to live, to know his perspective on salvation, what it means to be saved, what it means to be a church, to know his perspective on missions, to know his perspective on fighting sin, to know his perspective, right? We get a lot of perspectives. When we turn on the news, we get a lot of perspectives. And I'm not saying we don't watch the news. I'm not saying we don't do any X, Y, and Z, this, that, and third. But may we, even the more so, be in God's Word, the only truth, the only truth, and there's good news here. There's hope here. There's peace here. So may we seek his face. May we be praying fervently for one another, for the world. There's so much, right? I mean, you guys know it. You see it. You hear it. There's so much that goes on in our neighborhood. There's so much that's going on in our city as a whole. There's so much that's going on around the world. It is, I mean, like the old saints were saying when I was growing up, these are praying times. But it's praying times now, right? It's praying times all the time. And we need to be praying, 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 and seeking God's face. Amen? Amen. So may we do that. And may God give us, give us grace to do it. May he give us strength to do it. All right? So may he help us do it. And lastly, as if things weren't already worse, as we see in the text, Jesus was with the wild animal. So he's in the, he's in the wilderness. He's away. Satan is tempting him. There's wild animals. And as I was reading through some different commentaries on this, they are suggesting that these wild animals were in partnership with Satan. Right? Carrying out he willed in tempting the Lord Jesus in his circumstances that were already grueling and tough. That didn't make it any better or helpful. But the Lord always provides. The Lord provides, and we see that the angels were ministering to him, right? You see that at the end of verse 13, it says, and the angels were ministering to him. Meaning, as we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 3, 
uh, in that when Matthew 4, when the Lord Jesus was being tempted, right, it says he was hungry. The scholars suggest that they provided food for the Lord Jesus after this encounter with Satan. They provided food for him. But not only food, they provided presents. Provided presents. This was also confirmation that Jesus had won the battle. Right? That he had won the battle. But we know, as we know our Bibles, as we think about the Gospels, that he would have more battles. And he would have more battles, but in the end, he would overcome Satan and demons throughout his ministry. And ultimately, we would see that at the cross. At the cross. So just a few more things and then we're out. Sin is crouching at all of our doors. Right? Sin is crouching. The enemy is after us. Sin is crouching at all of our doors. I even think about teenagers or children in the room. How Satan wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy you. He wants you to be bound to sin. And my prayer, as I'm always praying, for all of us as a church and for our, our young folks, my prayer is that God would keep you. That he would keep you. And that he would help you live for his glory for all your days. That you would know him. That you would worship him. That you would live for him. That he would protect you. That's my prayer. And I just want to end by encouraging us all with some scriptures as we think about facing temptations of any kind. Right? Temptations of any kind. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We may face temptation. We will face temptation. But he won't let you be tempted more than you can bear. More beyond your ability. But then also what's what's beautiful about this, but with the temptation, he always provides a way of escape. He always provides a way of escape. You may be able to endure it. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God is able to keep us from stumbling. He's able to keep us from falling. Satan, Satan will try to trip you. God is able to keep you from falling. So may we look to God. May we trust in his strength, his might. May we fight with the weapons that he has given us. Our spiritual weapons. As we war against Satan. Like, when we leave from this room, it's war. (laughs) It's war out here. When we go into our workplaces tomorrow, it's war. In our homes, it's war. May we be reminded that ultimately, battle is already won. Jesus has won the battle. And that in the end, we are victors. We're not working for it, 
We're fighting for it. We're working from it. We are victorious in Him. And so may we be encouraged in this fight, in this battle, to know that the general has already won it for us. The general has already won. He just calls us as good soldiers. Good soldiers. Keep at it. Keep fighting. Keep trusting. Keep looking to him. And in the end, we'll be with him for all of eternity. Sin done away with once and for all. Satan done away with. Death done away with. Be with him. Worshiping him. Around the throne. Not even thinking about any of the battles. Not thinking about the temptation because there won't be any battles or temptations anymore. It's going to wipe every tear from our eye. We long for that day, amen? Until then, chin up. Keep fighting. Keep pressing. Keep trusting. Keep hoping. God is with us. He will keep us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you. Yeah, we thank you, Lord, that you're just so good. And that you're so, so kind to us. You allow us to be here this afternoon to crack open your word, study it, and look at it, to marvel at it praise you for it and find our hope and our strength and our joy in it. God, I know a lot of us here are tired, overwhelmed, hurting, maybe not feeling well. You know, this can go on and on and on. Help us, Lord. Help us to look to you this afternoon. To continue to look to you this afternoon. And to find our strength. For, for, for those of us who are tired, to, to find our energy in you. For those of us who are weak, to find our strength in you. That's all of us. To find our rest in you. Find our peace in you. Where there's there's not peace in in different circumstances that we might be experiencing or, or facing. Lord Jesus, in the way that you, by your word, by the power of your word, calm the storm, pray that we would too experience a calmness, a calmness, peace in the middle of life's hard circumstances and challenges. I pray that we'll find closeness with you. That you are near to the brokenhearted. That you are near to us. And that you are a very present help in our time of need. That you are, that we're present, that you are a right now help in our time of need any way that we need you, everything that we might need, you are there to provide it for us. 
And so help us to look to you. We thank you, God, in the Lord Jesus, in modeling for us what it means to be baptized and calling us to be baptized as Christians. Thank you that he doesn't call us to anything that he didn't obey himself. We thank you that also we have the, the example from him, the perfect example from him, that when he was tempted by Satan, he prevailed. He won. He, and in modeling after him, he used the word of God in the battle. So God, as we face temptations, after we leave from here, and as we go into the work week, may we run to your word. May we run to you in prayer. May we run to one another in community. Seek to encourage one another and help one another in our battles against sin, in our temptations, Lord. May we be honest about these things. May we do as the Bible calls us to confess our sins to one another. And in confessing our sins to one another, doesn't doesn't show that we are weak or doesn't show that we're more messed up than the other person. It shows that we're all on the same level plane. We're all sinners. And we're messy. But we're deeply loved by you. And so help us to remember that. Help us on whichever end we are on, whether the receiving end or the sharing end. I pray that you would saturate that time with grace, with gospel that we'll be reminded about what you did, Lord Jesus, on our behalf. And that grace is always available in you. And so God, help us to look to you in all of these ways, Lord. We love you. We thank you. Be with us. We continue to worship you. In Jesus' name.